Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the mailbag. Lovely to have you with us. I say us because it's me, Marcus Speller, and him, Andy Brassel. Hello, mailbaggers. Mailbaggers. Uh, they bag the mails. Um, yes, our favourite listeners, of course. Thank you very much, you delightful Patreon people uh, from the bottom of our hearts, as always. Anyway, Andy, you're here to answer some questions that I have for you, and I've collected these from our good Patreon uh, subscribers. And we're going to begin with this one from Jamie, who says, I was wondering whether you can see Eric Ten Hag moving to a bigger European team. He has put bigger in um, in uh, in speech marks and, and is aware that Ajax are a big side before he gets the wrath of, of any other Patreon subscriber. Um, he says he was highly linked to Bayern, amongst others. What do you think? Eric Ten Hag, Andy, he's, he's a highly rated, well, he's not that young, I suppose, but he does look very fresh and svelte in that suit. Yeah. And he's <laughs> exactly, and he's he's fresh at the top level as, mm. as well. We 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 have to say that he's uh, he's no Julian Nagel's man, but um, he's someone who's emerged in top level um, coaching like relatively recently. And um, we say that with full knowledge of the background he has, uh, having worked for Bayern before, and that's why when mm. Niko Kovac lost his job, um, Ten Hag was one of the. Uh, the leading speculated projected candidates um, for, for for the job. Now, that was never going to happen at the time. Firstly, because um, Ten Hag said he wasn't going anywhere in the middle of a season. He wasn't going to leave Ajax like that. And um, secondly, because Bayern had Hansi Flick up their sleeves and um, they'd bagged him for just such an occasion as what happened with uh, Niko Kovac. Of course, uh, Flick was not Kovac's appointment. He was an appointment by the club. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say that as a head coach, you might always feel a little bit twitchy if you get a high-profile coach added to your staff by the club, Mm. not by your your own appointment. And, um, you know, in the words of Austin Powers... Um, the, the board at Bayern might have said uh, to uh, Niko Kovac in the early part of autumn, you're right to be suspicious because uh, th- they... I thought you were going to go, the board said, yeah, baby. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the most obvious and unrevealing of all the Austin Powers phrases. Come on. The only one I could think of. Uh, right, okay. Go back and watch the film again. You've got time on your hands. True. Um, and, uh, you know, Hansi Flick has turned out to tick all the boxes for them. And I think if we're talking about Ten Hag and Bayern specifically, it's not hard to imagine at some point in the future. But, and not just because of what's going on in the world and the football world at the moment, um, it's harder to imagine in the immediate term that Ten Hag will go there. And mm. because... Um, Bayern have been very happy with what Hansi Flick has done. And what he has done, most importantly, as well as make Bayern play like Bayern with style and authority. Um, And, you know, it it would, if the season had been uninterrupted, have been like largely results dependent and certainly results dependent in terms of the Champions League. Um, 
Hansi Flick has stepped up to every possible point that Bayern could have demanded of him so far. But it's, it's beyond the results. It's the fact that he connects with the players and the players really say, respect uh, him. Bayern demand a, a lot as well. Did. Yeah, uh, but you know he he connected with the players and he was respected by the players in a way that Niko Kovac never was. Mm. Now, of course, there's the fact that Ten Hag does have this this history with a knowledge of Bayern. But then again, you could argue that about Niko Kovac, couldn't you? He was a former Bayern player. He was someone who was um, outside the inner circle of trust, if you like, but he was someone who understood the club and how it worked. A little bit like Ernesto Valverde and Barcelona, for example. You've never yeah. called him a, a La Masia boy, but he's someone who, sure. who got the got the club. But so, a player and a club is a, a player and a manager are different roles though at a club. I, I totally yeah. take the point on why why one may, may think. But I mean with Ten Hag when he was there at um Bayern what would you call it? Sort of Bayern B or their kind of second team or whatever. Hmm. That was when Pep Guardiola was there. Yes. And, and people have, have said, you know, Guardiola's had an influence on his style. You see the way his Ajax team play. I, I, I wonder that the Bayern is the obvious link, of course, and he said not that long ago, you know, Bayern's always in my heart or, or something like that. So it seems like an obvious fit. But but could he actually go and... Because, I, th- I, you know, could he even manage maybe Barcelona in the future or, or perhaps Manchester City when, when Guardiola leaves? You know, he, he's, he could be that level. He could be, um, but you're by and are that level, by the way, I should say. For the <laughs> yeah, you, you're looking at um, someone taking an enormous leap when he leaves Ajax, and <clears throat> I, th- I think what has been one of the biggest problems um, with Dutch coaching in the last couple of years is that if you look at Frank de Boer mm. and you look again at, at Philip Koku, after extraordinary achievements in the Eredivisie, they've struggled to reproduce them elsewhere, but we have to mm. ask why they've struggled to produce them elsewhere. And <clears throat> of course, there's been a lot of hand-wringing about uh, a lack of coaching talent being produced in the Netherlands in recent years. And that was a real worry for the national team when the job last came up. You know, they were really lucky that Ronald Koeman was out of work and kind of fell into their lap at that time. But also the fact that Kuman has approached the job in a way that doesn't just say, I'm um, filling time until Barcelona becomes available or till another Premier League job becomes available. Kuman has been properly invested in it. It's something we've talked about yeah. before on a number of occasions on OTC. He's not treated this like he's, he's, he's marking time, like he's Tim Robbins in the Shawshank Redemption. He's been <laughs> fully embraced the job. He's um, gone to the games. He's connected with the players. He's connected with the coaches in the Eredivisie. He, he's not phoned it in, which is is really important. And it was a tough um, job when he took it on. You know, one can forget yeah, that. Yeah, really, really tough. But what going back to the problems with um, De Boer and Koku, it's, it's not just about their ability. It, it, it just underlines that so much of being a successful coach is about choosing the right job at the right time. Now, that is the big problem for Ten Hag because both De Boer and Koku have chosen terribly. Yeah. Absolutely terribly in the jobs they've they've taken. They've gone into a card game where um, the cards are stacked against them from the very beginning. 
And you would hope that would be obvious in 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 retrospect. I'm not sure if it particularly is, but it's it's a sort of situation that you need to learn from because you know, as a a player, you can get away with one bad move and you get over it. With a coach, that's harder to get over, I think. When you you're a coach who's made two successive poor moves, do you ever recover from that? And if you're Ten Hag, who is someone who's not just a good coach, but very aware, very smart, I think you don't think I'm leaving Ajax come what may next summer or if everything's delayed by a year because of the current hiatus, 2021, whatever. Um, Mm. I think if you're him and you're smart, you think I move when there's a job that is not just a step up from Ajax, but a job where I have the conditions to succeed. So not just do Barcelona offer me, but do Barcelona make me an offer and the conditions are right. Mm-hmm. Um, the working capital is right. Um, the confidence in the board is right. There's enough time until the next election for me to get a proper go without a, a new candidate coming in and um, deciding to go his own way. He is smart enough, I think, to take all of those things on board. And, you know, we can think of normally for players, Eredivisie to top league elsewhere in Europe being an enormous mm-hmm. leap. Um, but I think with coaches, we've not only seen that, we've seen the fact that the judgment in terms of taking the right job is such an important thing. And I think all those things are going to count for Ten Hag when he comes to that point where he wants to consider another job. Mm, absolutely. All right, Andy, let's uh, let's let's tackle this one from Joey. And when I say let's, I mean you. Um, which countries <laughs> do you expect to be big favourites for tournaments a few years down the line? In other words, which countries may expect a coming golden generation of talent? He said golden generation, Andy. That, that fills an Englishman's heart with fear um, because of what happened. But, uh, but, but golden generations of talent, I mean... It's funny, isn't it, how I can remember, as, as I'm sure a lot of us can, you can remember even like, a, a, you know, the Romanian uh, golden generation of talent, or you can, you can Bulgaria, uh, Sweden, perhaps. Is, are there any nations, the so-called sort of smaller nations, that, that could have a, a golden generation of talent coming? Or do you feel that the way football has gone, it's just, it's just the big nations now? Well, firstly, Marcus, if golden generation freaks you out as a phrase, should we call it Gerasal Doro for for, for the next? I think that's a great idea. A couple of minutes. Let's let's Mm. let's do that. Also, it will give you a little hint towards where I'm heading, because I know they'll be seen (laughs) as as bigger nations, um, but in terms of population, that that they never have been. Portugal and the mm-hmm. Netherlands. And um, really, they're really fascinating case studies in European football, aren't they? Because they've made so much and they've made titanic reputations in the football world mm. with populations of around 10 million, which yeah. is absolutely extraordinary and, and says a lot for uh, not just organisation, but education of coaches. And I, I think... We were talking in the previous question about the Netherlands and how they've become a bit worried that they're not producing coaches at the same prolific level as, as maybe they used to. That's not really a worry for Portugal. Um, the, the level of education 
and the intellectual level of, of, of their coaches is still really, really high. And that's very, very important in, in producing players. Now, it's funny because we've looked at Portugal for probably a decade now as relying quite heavily on old boys. Mm-hmm. And what I think is quite interesting, especially when the first Portuguese footballer that still comes off the tip of your tongue is Cristiano Ronaldo, and it still will be by the time we get to Euro 20 in 2021. And the fact that probably Jose Font will be there as well. The fact oh, that yeah. Pepe will be there as well. And the fact that Fernando Santos, the coach, is completely unapologetic about that. What Fernando Santos has done really well since they won Euro 2016 is integrated young players. And a lot of people thought that he wouldn't be able to do that because he just wanted to rely on the old boys. But that mm. he's used them as an experienced base whilst giving greater responsibility to the likes of Rafael Guerrero, Bernardo Silva, um, Ruben Dias of, of, of Benfica, um, play, who I think will be their captain at some point in the post-Cristiano Ronaldo era. Um, it's, it's really, really impressive. And um, I think you look at the talent that Portugal have and then you go a little bit further down the line, um, I think Joao Felix is is, is the interesting one. Mm-hmm. Not just because he's already a huge headline maker and a hugely expensive player, um, but the way he develops, not just for Atletico, because of course club form is important. When is, is he being misused by Atletico, form. Andy? Is he being um, misused by them? Um, I think it's way too soon to say that. To, okay. to, to be perfectly honest, because he's still developing his personality as a as, as a footballer. Mm-hmm. I mean, what they're trying to do is give him the keys to the team, which I don't think there can be any complaints about that, to be honest. Um, and he's had um, difficulties in terms of conditioning, which I, I think it was always going to be a leap coming from Portugal to, to Atletico Madrid and always going to take a little bit of time. He's, he's looked better, I think, uh, in in 2020. Um, if there's one way in which Atletico have maybe missed a trick is to neglect the fact that because everyone takes a look at him and goes, oh, okay, new Kakar, they've overlooked the fact that he can be a bruising centre forward as well, that he can mm. win back post headers, that he can mix it with people back to goal um, on the penalty spot, that he can mm-hmm. do all that stuff as well as dictate the game from in front of him. Now, maybe that's because they want him to play a, a different role. They want him to play a creative role. Yeah. Um, but I, I think they shouldn't neglect the fact that he can do both and he can actually appeal to a, a side of Atletico that is something that they've consistently gone back to year after year after year. I don't think there should be the sense he cost over a, a hundred million and he can glide past people. So, you know, let's not have him score headers on the penalty spot. I mean, mm. they've got the players to facilitate him doing that, haven't they? With with Kieran Tripp Kieran Trippier and Renan Lodi on the on, on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um so they should. But when we talk about the development of Joao Felix, it's not just about what he does at club level, even though that factors into what he can produce internationally. It's about how long Cristiano Ronaldo will last because um, when they play in this hybrid four four two, I remember Joao Felix before he'd even left um, Benfica 
when he made his debut, it was in that um, uh, Nations League semi, wasn't it, against England at the Dragao? And a lot of people... That, that was, was against... I know. Uh, who was that against? Probably it wasn't against England. England played the Netherlands. Oh, the no, no. It would, it would have been uh, Switzerland, wouldn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah Switzerland. Yeah, yeah, quite mm. right, Marcus. Um, a, a lot of people, uh, especially English fans who were watching um, the uh, Nations League um, Final Four, looked at that and were like, oh, what's all the fuss about, man? Mm. And it's like, well, come on. It's his first international game. And not only his first international game, but his first international game in a very demanding position because if you play in this hybrid 4-4-2 as the second striker of Portugal, um, you are only ever going to be judged by the way you click with Cristiano Ronaldo. And <laughs> it's, it's always it's always been thus, isn't it, with, with forward players who play with Cristiano Ronaldo. The reason that um, Karen Benzema has the I knew you were going to mention Benzema. <laughs> it does. Well, it, it has to be because, yeah. we talk, firstly, because we talked about it in this week's OTC. Yep. But also because his reputation is totally gilded by the fact that Ronaldo loved him. And then you look at Andre Silva, who is quite a fresh young player who probably played, when he came into the international team, he probably played less club football than Joao Felix had mm-hmm. for, for Porto, of course, rather than Benfica. Um, but straight away, he worked out how to facilitate Cristiano Ronaldo, got the golden seal of approval, and then you're away, aren't you? Yeah. But you know, Joao Felix was someone who straight away when he came into the Benfica team, Bruno Lage, when he, he made him a first pick, again, gave him the keys to the team. Now, to move from that, not just to having to reproduce that, but moving into a situation where you become, your, your role is different. You become the feeder of Ronaldo and you are only judged on that criteria, that's very, very different. And to be written mm. off for that after one game, that's bloody harsh. You know, mm. it's something that's very difficult. So when we talk about developing um, a team of talent, Portugal have got everything. And so you, Portugal you think, could be it could be a golden generation coming up for Portugal, which is which yeah, is quite because, something considering they are European champions and yeah, also UEFA Nations League champions. Let us let us not forget that trophy. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the ability that's in there, on paper, it's way better than what won the Euros in in, in twenty sixteen. And mm. you think a year down the line, Bruno Fernandes is probably going to be one of the best players in the in, in the Premier League. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, you've you've got so many players who are developing at the same time, um, and Joao Felix. I, I think the extra year will do him a bit of good. You know, yeah. the fact that the Euros here in twenty twenty one will do him a bit of good. I think you could say the same for the Netherlands as well. I think um, you know they're they're relatively inexperienced together as a team, even though there are some more experienced players in, in there like mm-hmm. uh, Memphis. And like uh, Ryan Barbel, although goodness knows if he'll make it next year, he might be one of the ones to to suffer, especially as the likes of of, of Daniel Marlon um, will be will be fit. Uh, Myron Bayadu will, will probably be more important for them by then as well. Um, but there's lots of young talent there, and with both of these two nations, they've got the experience to guide them through as well. So, as well as having those those great young players, you have Van Dyke and you have Daily Blint 
And on the Portugal side, you have Ronaldo and you have Pepe. And yeah, he's a nightmare that won't go away, but he really won't go away. <laughs> In the words of Jerry Sadovitz, the nightmare continues. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, a number of people on the um, on the Discord app were asking about Jesse Marsh, uh, the American coach, of course, at, uh, at RB Salzburg. Um, and, and people are asking, how do you think he's done? Will he be in a shout with a shout to get the RB Leipzig job in future. I think there's there's a few people that are hopeful that he can represent uh, American coaches in perhaps a way that maybe they've not been represented in European football. And did you think he's got a chance? I mean, you could argue he's already done that, but do you think he's got a chance to really, really kick on from the Austrian Bundesliga? Um, there's, there's a possibility, certainly. Um, I mean, before we get this underway, Marcus, I don't want to... Yes. Uh, name and shame in, in in front of the listeners, but um, mm-hmm. we are very much um, spelling Marsh M A R S C H. It's not oh, yeah. like he's a he's a cousin of Mike or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you know, any, anything that goes on in the WhatsApp group, Marcus stays in the WhatsApp group. Yeah, I just okay, fair to enough. Know that. Uh-huh. Appreciate um, that. How are you pronouncing uh, it, Marsh? Yeah, right. Like Rodney, Same. okay, <laughs> exactly. Carry on. See, I said Mark. I said Mike. He said Rodney. I mean, that, that says a lot, doesn't it? I, I know where I stand on this. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> far away about Jesse. You also could have had Hackney, but I could have done. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think what's so impressive about Jesse Marsh is he's someone who. I think he's very aware of the fact that he's representing Americans in Europe and American coaches in Europe. Mm. And part of that is because of his background, because, of course, he was the assistant to Bob Bradley um, with the US for a bit, and he's close to him. And Bob Bradley, for non-Americans, you know, he's absolute coaching royalty, and he deserves to be looked at as... um, world coaching royalty anyway but because of his spell at Swansea in which he was put in an invidious position and didn't get a lot of time a lot of people who are casual observers of Bob Bradley look at him and like oh what sort of fuss about man and I think that has quite an effect on Jesse Marsh he Mm. looks at that and thinks geez if this guy who I worked with so closely who's an absolute legend in my field, particularly in my country, can fall on his face. I need to be really properly prepared for you. Andy, Europe. why, why, why um, do you say Bob Bradley is, is royalty? I understand in America he is. I'm not, not arguing that at all. But but other than the States, you know, he had a spell managing Egypt. He had a really good Nor- spell managing Egypt. He, he, he did, to be fair. Um But still not Europe. And I know that that sounds quite sort of European elitist and so on, but as in as in European yeah. football fans wouldn't perhaps know too much about that stint. He had a season in Norway, and then he had a season. Was it a season or, or a year at Le Havre? You know how did how did that go down there? Uh, he did a France? great job. He did right. a great job in Love. Uh, I mean, they came within a goal of going up automatically mm-hmm. that season. And he but did it's a still really good not. Job in- but it still wasn't top tier though. And then at Swansea, yeah. it didn't quite happen. So when you say he's sort of coaching well, royalty. Don't you think that's a question of? I think that's a question of, of opportunity, rather than a question of his work. 
which I think is different. You know that that old phrase about you know there are only small part there, there are no small parts, only small actors. I, I think <laughs> Bob Bradley is a, a, a really good example of how um, how you should face those sort of challenges because mm. he's a guy who, as you say, has really had minimal respect from the European market, but has shown such a a willingness to get involved and done a good job in so many of those situations. You know when people yeah. say, "No, I agree with Mourinho, you. I think he's a good coach." What would, yeah. what would Mourinho or Guardiola do if they had a no-budget club midway in the Championship or something mm-hmm. like that? The reality is they'll never know because they'll never have to know. Mm-hmm. But Bob Bradley, despite um, having such a gilded reputation at home, has never been afraid to get his hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And really, the highest profile example of that at Swansea was the one that blew up in his face, which was really unfortunate. But going back Mm -hmm. to Jesse Marsh, the reason that this is important is because, as I said, it made him think, look, if this can happen to Bob, this can happen to anyone. It could definitely happen to me. So he was someone who made a terrific effort to learn German before he even got anywhere near the Salzburg job. Um, He went and was assistant. He's used all the resources of the Red Bull Network. Of course, he he worked in New York for them. Mm -hmm. Then he was assistant to Ralph Ranić at RB Leipzig, which was really important because I think, one, to get a working knowledge of German and a working knowledge of European football is very important. But two, to work next to Ralph Ranić, who is someone... Um, who is not just a, a, a terrific coach, but a terrific manager. You know, he knows how mm-hmm. to really run a club as well. So to get that close to him and really learn from him, I think shows how serious and how smart Jesse Marsh is. Now, how will this season judge him? Well, I think a lot of people will get a pass on this season because of the extraordinary times in which we're living in and that, I think in a lot of cases, clubs rushing to judgment at the end of this campaign on a coach would be really harsh simply because, um, you know, it's just not a normal season. So you'd like to believe that a lot of coaches will get more time. I would have liked to think that Jesse Marsh would have got that anyway, because what he did in the first half of the season, particularly in a Champions League context, was extraordinary to mix it with Liverpool, to go into match day six, Mm -hmm. having a chance of knocking them out. And they gave them a real going over in the first half of that that match day six game in Salzburg, didn't they? Um, You know, it's quite possible if this season comes to a conclusion that Salzburg won't be the Austrian Bundesliga champions, um, that it might be Lask instead. Now, of course, part of that is because of Valerian Ishmael has done great work at Lask. But also part of that is Jesse Marsh is the victim of his and Salzburg's own success in the first half of the season in that they couldn't hold Erling Haaland and they couldn't hold Minamino as well. And they were really close to losing Huang, who was uh, drawing great interest from, from Lyon, who I think will come back and try and sign him at some point. Um, that 
he um, drew a lot of interest as well from uh, the Premier League. I think Leicester were one of those who were interested in Huang. And they just about managed to hang on to him. And they really felt that at the start of 2020. Um, they lost at home to to Lask in, in a game that they had quite a lot of. And you could feel the fact that they'd lost a, a lot of that quality. Um, but I've been really impressed by Marsh and what I've seen of him in European football so far. And, you know, his ability to prepare himself, um, his desire to communicate, I think, are things that have, have, have really come through. I mean, I'm sure many of you by now have seen that piece of footage um, where he's talking German with a little bit of English in yeah, yeah. um, halftime in the match um, at Anfield against Liverpool. There's that brilliant phrase, isn't there? Es ist nicht ein fucking Freundschaftsspiel. It's it's not a fucking friendly. It's absolutely fantastic. And that will really live with me. But I don't think he should just be boiled down to that. Although I think there is something to take from it. But Mm -hmm. the the fact that he is um, passionate and he is determined to communicate at all times. But I think if it works out for him in Europe, and I'm sure it will, whether it be Salzburg or elsewhere, it'll all be down to his prep. All down to the prep. Absolutely, Andy. Well, that concludes the end of uh, our time on the mailbag today. Thank you very much for your questions. There's a, there's a, there's a few more questions uh, that I know people have had on, on the Discord app. We will get round to them, I'm sure, in, in the coming weeks. Uh, but Andy, a pleasure as always talking uh, and, and listening to you about uh, all things European football and, and, and whatnot. So thank you very much, Mr. Brassel. Likewise, Spellino, and thank you, mailbaggers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, thank you very much. Uh, do uh, keep in touch with us on on the uh, on on the mailbag channel on the Discord and get your questions in there. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay safe and keep well. Just a final question on the incident that saw you pick up a yellow card. Uh, how do you reflect on that now? Yeah, I'll take the yellow card in that situation. You know, the the emotion of of that moment and the pride I had in the way the team uh, really started out the second half was a, was was what led to that celebration. And so, I think in years past they didn't give yellows for or they didn't they didn't punish uh, trainers for that. But I'm okay with taking a yellow there. This was a Stakhanov production.